Welcome to another episode of the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee, and we have with us Sarah Laverty from Trainer Road and our CEO, Nate Pearson. And today we are going to look at studies because Sarah and I have been, we're always looking at research. And every once in a while we come together to talk about the research that we've been looking at. We don't know if we're going to do videos on these yet on our YouTube channel. It's just kind of exploratory. And it's a fun discussion about research. And we're looking into sleep and how it affects us. We're looking at how pro, pro cyclists train a really cool study that looked at four years of training data with a bunch of cyclists. We're going to look at perfect perfectionism because absolutely, I mean, none of us are perfectionists and none of us have issues with that, right? <laughs> so we're going to look at perfectionism and how it can screw us John, up. John, you're a perfectionist. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. No. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. I think most of us type A people listening to that can relate. And then at the end, we're going to more just like some interesting observations about lactate and high, like elite level athletes and their, and their profiles. It's, it's going to be interesting. So uh, without further ado, Sarah, uh, and actually, if you're listening to this podcast and you appreciate all this, it'd be great if you gave it a thumbs up right now, if you're watching on YouTube or if you shared it, um, on any sort of app or whatever else you're using, that would be all fantastic. So I'll tell you what, if Nick. people, if we raise 20% in likes or like, uh, thumbs up or she listens, we'll stop this for like a month. We'll stop saying this thing, <laughs> maybe yes. two months if you guys actually do it. So yes. I know cause like probably 90% of people who listen, don't do it. Yeah. And if, if just a little bit and everyone, and the people who do do it are like, please say it so we can stop talking about it so much. And yes. I want to talk about uh, red light, green light too, somewhere in here too, because it's pretty okay. exciting, but Nate, not we're, now, later. We're almost at 96,000. Actually, by the time this publishes, I bet we'll be at 96,000 YouTube subscribers. Can we mm. make them, do, can, if they get to a hundred thousand, I'll stop talking for a while about that stuff. Okay. <laughs> so like all in the podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, just kidding. <laughs> it's just you guys. You'll take it. One million. I'm gone. I'm just kidding. That would be something. We get to 100,000 real off the fast. podcast by getting to a million. Just kidding. No, 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 no. Um, yeah, we yeah. can stop doing it for a month. Yeah, there we go. I like it. Um, Nate, do you want to just talk about red light, green light first? No, make them wait. <laughs> okay, sounds good. All right, Sarah, uh, let's start with your looking your studies looking into sleep. Yeah, so the first one, um, it's called The Impact of Sleep Duration on Performance Among Competitive Athletes. And it was a system, I always can't say this word right, systematic. <laughs> systematic. That's what I always say, systemic. Anyway, systematic literature review, which is uh, just uh, like a summary of the evidence on a particular topic using systematic methods. So the three things that the researchers were curious about um, they were looking at 12 different sports um, and whether sleep duration has an impact on all of those sports as a whole um, on performance in those sports. Um, then they were looking at the different aspects of those performance, so different aspects of fitness and looking at whether sleep duration differentially impacts those aspects. And then uh, looking at chronic versus acute sleep deprivation and how those impact performance differently. Um, what would so, be the difference between those two is chronic versus acute? Yeah, the chronic uh, was considered a week or more of reduced sleep. What was considered reduced sleep varied between the studies. In terms of sleep duration, it went from like two hours of sleep to ten and a half hours of sleep um, across studies. Uh, yeah, ten and a half hours sounds really nice. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, so there, the, and then the cute was um, one or two days of okay. uh, sleep deprivation. So they found 19 studies that were suitable for these questions. Um, 14 of those studies were experimental and five were observational. Um, as I said, yet yeah, the sleep duration varied quite significantly between the studies, but all of the studies were done in competitive athletes across 12 different sports. It was quite simple. They looked at the main um, outcome of interest for each study. So um, whether that was like aerobic performance or anaerobic performance speed, um, and then looked at whether uh, sleep duration uh, basically had a relationship uh, to performance, a positive relationship or a negative relationship or no relationship. Then they tallied all of those results, then like presented them to us in this paper. So overall, all of the studies found positive or n null findings, meaning that there was no negative findings. Basically, like s more sleep never... Isn't bad. Yeah, is <laughs> never bad. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um yeah, don't, exactly. Don't let your teenagers hear this, parents. And parents are like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Although, to get their kids out of bed. Yeah, yeah I have heard people say, like, I slept too much. And no such thing. I, yeah, I can't relate to that at all. Um, but maybe it's just, I, yeah, I have no idea. Um, when it comes to the aspects of fitness uh, that are noteworthy for us as cyclists, the strongest relationship between sleep and performance was in technical, motor coordination um, and tactical-based outcomes. Um, all of the studies reporting those outcomes found uh, positive relationships between sleep and duration so like catching uh, a football hitting a baseball something like that yeah 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 or even for um cyclists it's like i mean that could be like mountain biking or race tactics or yeah. those things are most likely to be impaired by uh, a lack of sleep and then also interestingly aerobic activity was more sensitive to sleep um duration compared to anaerobic activity and um, if you slept more uh you had more benefit for aerobic activity than anaerobic activity. Like it wasn't impacted as much. But I like saying it the other yeah. way. If you slept less, you, aerobic activity was harder, right? Yeah, I think yeah, that's exactly. To, yeah, yeah. You would notice more of a performance decline if you yes. have a bad night of sleep when you're doing aerobic exercise. And they didn't speculate as to why that was, but I mean, perhaps like effort. I, I know that, like, uh, for me, like, my psychology is all messed up the night after not sleeping. So, like, it may feel harder and that sustained effort that is required of aerobic activity could be... Recover less. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, possibly. Uh, I would love to see, like, a study, and I bet it exists, um, but it'd be cool to see a study that, look, that looks at, like, markers that are indicative of oxygen uptake <clears throat> or oxygen utilization in the body to see if like truly like aerobic exercise is limited by if the oxygen component of that is somehow limited right like less sleep People. means that our blood is you know maybe it's lower rbc count or maybe it's something like that that ends up our blood isn't able to be restored as much who knows it'd be really interesting to see yeah yeah do a vo2 max test after two hours of sleep that's it. Yeah. Like and then after a week of nothing, study. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like just keep doing it. <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> yeah, zero percent completion rate on that one here. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that'd be so rough. So yeah, and then the second um thing that they focused on was, or the third, I think we're on now. Um, what impact does one or two nights of poor sleep have on performance compared to a week or longer? And all the studies looking at the impact of sleep duration um over the course of one week or longer found that sleep duration was associated with 
better performance. Again, if we look at it the other way, it's like sleep deprivation has a greater detriment to your performance. Um, over one week which is also unsurprising and the same was true for one or two nights of sleep but um, the results weren't as unanimous so like there were a few studies that didn't find any results of one or two per nights of sleep so I suppose what does this mean for us as cyclists Wait, I want to I want to talk about that yeah. you, that's a really good point so because we talk about the night before an Ironman like you can't sleep and then people freak out and I've seen some, I probably read some of the studies that are in that group. I just want to make sure people hit this point home. Some of the studies say there was no decrease in performance on those days. And I'm just going to placebo everyone and say, you're fine. You're in the, that group. So if you have one or two nights of bad sleep, you're going to be fine at your race. And maybe too, to, uh, to Sarah's point about effort, there's a difference between training, which what these are versus an Ironman, like you're, or at big race, you're adrenaline, like you're pumped, you are alert, right? Like effort, mm -hmm. you guys ever start a race, your effort feels like nothing, even if you didn't sleep the whole night before, it's like you're on clouds. And that's why you so use a power meter. Going, out, going out too early or too hard early in a race? Never. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like, I think that yeah, on these studies, Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong, but overall, if you have chronic sleep deprivation, you're going to be slower, right? And mm -hmm. I want to also get into, like, what is the, the cutoffs for this? Like, what mm -hmm. is enough? Or was it always more sleep equals faster? Yeah. Because uh, yeah. another annoying thing, too, is I'm getting older. I can't sleep long. It's really annoying. Mm -hmm. I try my mm -hmm. hardest. Uh, it's just kids, right, Jonathan? Like, yeah, totally. It's just like your clock has changed and it's so annoying. But anyways, that's what we can speculate, but it's not as big of an impact. And I don't think, too, everyone else is in the same boat where they get nervous. We talked about it before, Chrissy Wellington, probably yeah, the greatest Chrissy. Ironman athlete of all time, men and women, didn't sleep at all before championships. Mm -hmm. At all. She said <laughs> she was too nervous. <laughs> and she smashed yeah. everybody, right? Yeah. Uh, that's pretty cool, actually. <laughs> can I share? Yeah, can I share? Because I do feel that I have had terrible performances when I don't get a good night's sleep before a race. And, you know, high-functioning anxiety, type A, whatever else you want to call it. But, like, I I work backwards and I have this whole plan about when every single thing needs to be accomplished yeah. so then I can get the sort of sleep that I need to and be able to do that. And I have to clear all that stuff out because I've found that if I don't do that and I do get a poor night's sleep the night before the race that I do perform poorly. Like I'm not able to do it. But I, I was thinking about this because Sarah, I brought that up to you and I was like, man, I don't agree with these whole, like you can get a bad night's sleep the night before the race and do it well, because in my case, and once again, I'm not refuting science with my own individual case, just saying that for me personally, it feels different. But I started thinking about it. How much of it is because I like built up a huge amount of stress the day before because mm -hmm. I wasn't able to go to bed. And it's not the sleep. It's the fact that I was just absolutely flooded with bad hormonal balance from all the stress that I was going through the day before. And my body is trying to recover from that, right? Maybe sleep could have helped it. But in reality, it might not have been the bad night's sleep. It might have just been the fact that I was so stressed the day before because that's likely what led to me not being able to get to bed on time because things weren't going as planned. That stress is maybe what caused it. And I got to think that like what you said, Nate, is really important to a person like me. If everything does hit the fan and I can't follow my schedule and get to bed on time, worrying about it is not going to help me. It's only going yeah. to make it worse. Exactly. Yeah, that's why the placebo <laughs> thing of like just being okay to stay up late. Or to yeah. be up late. Yeah, because uh, I, I feel this during the day, not just with sleep. If it's like a day where it's like a particularly stressful day in life or work or for whatever reason, my workout later that day is so much harder. So much harder. Mm -hmm. I could have the best nutrition. I could have slept wonderfully the day before. 
But if I went through something tough in the day, man, that makes it really hard to go out and do a good workout. cortisol. I bet you it's a combination of cortisol and dopamine too. Um, oh. Low dopamine is like can be so hard to get on the bike and then to do the intervals. Um, yes, I think that's also why one of the reasons why caffeine helps. Um, mm-hmm. Probably some people more too. For me, well, uh, having you know, I've talked about ADHD. That's a chronic low dopamine. Caffeine, a stimulant, can spike that up. And doing that, having low dopamine throughout the day, and then having some caffeine, and then working out, you can feel amazing. And it's the, the RPE goes less because your dopamine. I, I believe it's because your dopamine is higher, but I'm not sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it'd be interesting. I think that's another I bet, question. I, I'm sorry, sorry. We just, I guess I just I wonder too if that's where there's because there's different responders for caffeine. I wonder if they looked at people who have been diagnosed with ADHD, the mm. who don't, about if like the benefit of caffeine is tied to that because we've seen that some people don't aren't as big a responder to high caffeine amounts. Hmm. But it is a stimulant a good, in general, but that could have a yeah. better bigger weight on it, right? I wonder, Sarah, if like they could. That seems like if you have enough data, it'd be interesting. I don't know how much overlap you'd be able to get, but that's the sort of thing that you that a systematic review or meta-analysis could really help with, right? Because you could mm-hmm. look at all of these examples of the effects of caffeine on people and dopamine, and then you could see how many of them were indicated to have ADHD, and that's when you can actually mm-hmm. make sense of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, Sarah, I cut you off, please. I was too excited. <laughs> no, no, it's related. It's a symptom of ADHD. Think... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like if we come back to like uh, sleep and the impact of like sleep deprivation and performance as well, it's like this system systematic review doesn't disentangle the like why you're not sleeping. So like if it is like that you're up with kids or whatever, then that might have one effect. But then if it's like you're anxious, because I know like often when I can't sleep, it's because of that anxiety. But the next day isn't necessarily too badly impacted because it's like there's some carryover effect of like my nervous system just being like jacked up so if i if i go straight away after like a really bad night of sleep if i do a workout or something then i actually i can do all right but then if i wait until like later that day to try and work out my nervous system's shot I'm just like yeah. being activated and I'm just like on the come down at that point. So you're sympathetic all yeah. night and you're in the morning, you're still sympathetic. And yeah. then later on, you're like parasympathetic, meaning that rest and digest. And it's like, no, thank you. We're we've been up for yeah. enough. Yeah. Yeah. Wrong time, yeah. Yeah. Wrong exactly. time right? It's like, yeah, it's just messed up. Yeah. So yeah. I, what I'm hearing, Sarah, is you're recommending 3 a.m. workouts for people. <laughs> no. I've definitely done that before. I've just been like, I'm so sick of being up. So I'm just going to get it done now and it's working. You've done that, right? Where you're just like, I've been up, so yeah. I might as well get up and do stuff. And you get things done. But then at like 8 a.m., you're like, oh, geez. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to uh, personal experience. So I got treated for ADHD like um, after Cape Epic, after my last concussion. Symptoms of ADHD are worse when you can't sleep. And I was depressed, too. And symptoms of depression are worse when you can't sleep. And then anxiety can be inside of that, too, and worse when you can't sleep. And it kind of is like this snowball. These are prescription things that you want to talk to your um, doctor about. And we know that like Benadryl long term. Um, could be associated with dementia. So those who do like one of those um, NyQuil or something that has the, that antihistamine, the Benadryl, um, I forgot what the the um, scientific name of it, but you have that. You probably don't want to do that. Uh, and But also the health risks of not sleeping are huge. That also like increases exactly. all-cause mortality. Yeah. And what my doctor did is she stepped me through um, a couple different sleeping pills, and one was Trazodone, which I believe is a – it's like a anti-anxiety or depression one, but the real issue is that it caused people to be too sleepy. But that one gave me like a hangover in the morning. And then the one that worked well for me was Tamazepan, 
which is also anti-anxiety if you take it at a high dose, but I would take it at a low dose, just makes me sleepy and I could wake up in the morning. And I wish I had that while I was training because again, like Sarah said, you have anxiety that reduces your sleep, you can't get up. And I think the trade-off of, I'm not sure if there are health issues with temazepam, but at least I can get that onset of sleep. And sometimes I still wake up, but um, those are two different issues too that you can talk to a doctor about. There's the onset of sleep and then there's the staying asleep. And I think Sarah, what, what, what my experience is, I want to hear your experience too, is high anxiety. Sometimes I could fall asleep and then I'd wake up at two or three and I'd just be up. And it's like, wow, I slept four hours tonight or three hours. Uh, was that your, what's your experience? Yeah. I mean, that happened to me. Like just, I said it to you, Jonathan, like two nights ago, I was like, I fell asleep for like an hour and a half. And then I was just wired. My heart was just like going the whole night. I felt like I should have just got up and gone, but I eventually did fall back asleep. But then it's like, I fall back asleep at like 6am and then I'm sleeping then. Till, it's just, it throws your whole day off. But, um, I have tried Trazodone as well. Um, but that has horrible, that just made me feel like I was like under a cloud for up until like 2 PM or something like that. So, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to recommend someone. She's not going to know I'm going to recommend this and she's hopefully you guys blow her up, but I have this crazy, not crazy. This is amazing. So I've, I've had therapists and stuff, but I also hired a self-love coach like hmm, eight months ago. And a self-love coach is all about like a lot of times anxiety and stuff is about feeling not enough and things like that. And, uh, it's coach, not therapy, so it's different. But you talk about things, and then she works you through, like, um, somatic exercises. So a lot of breathing stuff. She'll go through, like, uh, like visualization things or ways that when you do have anxiety, like, imagining, like, a shape to it and a color and breathing through it and expanding it and making it close. And every kind of session, a coaching session, you do both sides and how you might improve your own boundaries because anxious people can sometimes um, mm -hmm. not have boundaries and overgive and stuff like that. And on the other side, do some somatic work to help calm your nervous system. And thus you have better boundaries, and thus you have better sleep. And then you wake up and you have better boundaries and it's you better sleep. And it's like this snowball. And she just started coaching again. If this sounds like you, like uh, Sarah and I, she her Instagram is Jess the the love coach. And tell her I sent you. And hopefully she <laughs> she gets too many people, but I can't recommend it highly enough. Like that and the therapist is amazing, but it's so different than therapy and it's so needed too, because therapists never walk you through a 20 minute breathing exercise. And afterwards I'm like, wow, my chest doesn't, I'm not tight anymore. Mm. I actually like removed it. Like I've had like five or six months now of not anxiety because of her. That's awesome. Yeah. Huge. Mm. Thank you, Nate, for sharing that. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. Sarah too. Um, Thanks, Sarah. Yeah. Yeah. Both of you. Um, Sarah, looking at the impacts of this and like the different types of like racing or riding, I guess if you do have a bad, a bad night's sleep, that sort of thing. Once again, if it's like bad and it's one or two nights, it's probably nothing to worry about. But if it's chronic bad sleep, what are the things, what are the suggestions that you would have to like adjust maybe your training or to do or avoid certain things? Yeah, I think, um, like you said, like one or two nights bad sleep, don't panic. Like for me, I if I don't get the workout done early in the morning, then it will suffer. Say if I've had a bad night's sleep and I wait until that evening, my workout will suffer. So with Trainer Road, you can just push that workout uh, to another day and you might get more out of yourself um, by just like doing it after a full night's sleep. But there's obviously times where like at races and things like that, that you, you just, you can't push it. But then maybe like Nate said, like this research might help you and give you reassurance that um, actually there's a good chance that it might not have an impact on your performance. But 
Obviously, there are some safety concerns. This evidence suggests that there's technical and tactical, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. If you do have bad night's sleep, it may be better to go on a train on the trainer as opposed to out on the road, I think, um, just to avoid any, like silly decisions or poor judgment calls and then the same with like if you had planned to get out on your mountain bike or do a technical um trail ride or something like that it might just be best to like hold off on that for that day um and then get back on the wagon and try and get a solid night's sleep before you kind of uh push those um your body in those ways yeah Yeah. too what's so interesting about that is that they've done a lot of studies where less sleep you have the same reaction time as a drunk person like it's, it's like you're crazy. drunk driving. Also, um, I'm, we're going to splice this in, but I'm going to cover another sleep study. Afterwards, we'll put it in. I got to bring it up. But it's cool. about can you get used to sleeping less? Because a lot of people go, I just sleep six hours and it's fine. And I remember we'll, that. Show- that was really common with like Tim Ferriss for a long time. I remember he was like, I just sleep three to four. It was like three hours or something yeah. a night. And Actually, I can just do it right now. I'll tell you that we can look cool. at, we can cut in the, the thing. But what it showed is that um, people who like didn't sleep at all, like two hours or, or less, like their um, reaction times and their mental cognition went really bad, really fast. But other people, and they did, they did eight hours. And they'd had some other like um, less ones, and I'll show you in a, tell you in a second. Everybody, including the eight hours in bed, this is in bed, not sleep, got worse as it went on. But their perception of how tired they were plateaued. But their performance got worse and worse and worse. And these aren't even athletes. These are people just you know they, they need more recovery. And a big huge takeaway from that is eight hours in bed is not enough uh, to do it. Like you want. That's what I'm trying to do, nine hours in bed. I think I've done it two or three times since New Year's. Um, but I'm trying my best. And hey, that's it. So you just try. That's it. Actually, what we're going to do is we're just going to play uh, the TikTok. It's from a doctor who specializes in sleep study. Follow uh, him on TikTok. It's that sleep doc. You can learn so much about sleep. So here's that. Uh, here it is. Can you get used to sleep deprivation? Just train your body to get by on less sleep. That's the question I'm going to answer for you in the next two minutes with data to support it. And the answer may actually surprise you quite a bit. By the way, I'm a child neurologist and a sleep medicine physician at Duke. If you are someone you know sleeps, follow me. You won't regret it. Let's jump in. Let's answer this question. The graph behind me is from an amazing study done by a group at UPenn and Harvard back in 2003, probably the best controlled and designed study that we have on this topic. They tested everybody's performance on a test of attention. That was their main outcome measure. And that was the baseline measure for everybody. It was their own performance on this task. Then they split the group into four different groups and gave them different doses of sleep, what they call time in bed. The green group had zero hours time in bed. The red group had four hours time in bed. Six hours time in bed for the blue group and eight hours time in bed for the orange group. And they only let them get into bed for that amount of time. And they did this over two weeks, 14 days, except for the zero-hour time in bed group. You can't sleep deprive them for 14 straight days. That's torture and they'd probably die. How did each group do on this test of attention? Well, the zero-hour time in bed group, no surprise, they did terrible. After three days, they're performing really badly compared to their baseline, right? They're at a level of 15 here on this scale, higher the number, the worse they're performing. The four-hour time in bed group, they did that for the full full 14 days, only four hours time in bed. Their performance worsened over time, and each day they seem to be getting worse, such that by the end, they're performing at the same level as someone that had been sleep-deprived for three continuous days. Pretty terrible. The six-hour time in bed group also worsened, and by the time they were finished, they were performing at the same level as someone that had been sleep-deprived between one and two continuous days. The interesting thing here is that they worsened in a linear fashion. There's no signs of a plateau effect here, right? They just kept getting worse and worse and worse. Now, 
surprisingly, the eight-hour time in bed group, their performance also worsened, likely because eight hours' time in bed does not equate to eight hours' time of sleep. They were probably getting sleep deprived as the study went on, so their performance also worsened. But here's the kicker. They asked each person how they felt they were doing when it came to sleepiness throughout the study, and their subjective report of how sleepy they felt, that actually did plateau. So they began to think, okay, yeah, I'm not getting more sleepy as the study goes on, yet their performance continued to worsen. Their body was telling them, I'm not that sleepy. Their performance worsened over time, and that's a pretty dangerous combination. So you mentioned this, Nate, but like the eight hours in bed thing isn't eight hours in sleep, but even eight hours, those people progressively got worse. And then like he said, looking at the curve, it doesn't seem to be like a, a plateau effect. Yeah. Like, like, you know, and like you kind of hope that it's almost like logarithmic or something that it's like really bad at first. And after that, you kind of adapt to it. Right. But mm-hmm. it's not. It's just. It keeps going and up to the right. crazy part is a six hour group got to be so like they were the same performance as someone who didn't sleep at all. Right. And how many people, how many of us get six hours a night? And it's like Mothers your performance. This? Like, oh, oh, that's, you know, it's I rough. Mean, it's hard. That one you can't handle. Yeah. But it's so hard. Yeah. But I guess I'm saying that because I, I feel for you. You know what I mean? Like, and that's yeah. like the. I swear, we should have like new mother parking spaces everywhere. We should make life so much easier for new moms. Like it's it's hard. Dads too. I was, I was <laughs> up the Dads whole. Like, yeah. We just switched off. Like, <laughs> I you if, if you're a really old train road user, you got many support tickets answered for me at two, three, four, five in the morning because I would like feed the baby and then be like, "Ooh, are there any uh, support tickets?" And I would answer them for Europe. Uh, but yeah Yeah. obviously in general moms have it worse than dads uh in society in general patriarchy moms do so much more work than dads in general too yes and my body didn't have to go through birthing somebody which is a huge benefit (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah exactly so sarah on these ones did it say any more about was 10 hours better than nine hours i think 10 and a half or what was the the best kind of sleep did they even cover that no they didn't because it was like just purely based on the outcome of the individual studies um Mm -hmm. so it didn't like give that nuance but definitely would be something yeah i'm interested in and also i did wonder how much that varies between individuals and or is it just that we all like some people are able to convince themselves that they're they're fine on um like less sleep uh which if i was to hazard a guess it might be true but yeah it um, is true I mean, they, yeah. they can't do less sleep, but they can convince themselves for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, um, yeah. I, my, my advice for this is to have the same, um, it's, it's a lot of us get forced. There's like optimal versus like reality. And when I started trainer road and I quit my job, I had this luxury for a little while to not set an alarm in the morning and I would just wake up naturally when I could. That was amazing. And that would be cool if we could all do that. But I don't think any of us could do that. Is to set the have the same wake up time every day and then keep walking back your bedtime and reduce the, you know, the the reduce the lights, wind down, all that with the phone, which is so hard. And then work on if you are anxious, like Sarah and I, like work on that part. But just get in bed early, 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 and then see if you can make it to that wake up time. And if you wake up once at like you know, 530 when you're AM6, I would still keep doing that. It's probably better to wake up a little bit early and see how long you can stay in bed. And I believe I've seen it where like, you know, 10 hours for like a high training athlete still is beneficial. Think about how much money you spend and how much work and all that uh, you put into cycling. And if you were to sleep one extra hour, every workout, you'd get more like your FTP would be so much higher and your mood would be better and your work performance would be better and your relationships would be better and your health would be better and you'll live longer. 
but we're like TikTok feels so good. Like, <laughs> exactly. <yeah. laughs> but we <gotta> scroll. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah, tic- TikTok literally tells me to go to bed. It's like, whoa, what are you doing? Stop there. Yeah. Go to bed. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It's so hard. I but that's share... also this. I'm sorry. I get so passionate about this. That's also yeah. if you're ADHD people, it's called like revenge bedtime, where you'd feel like during the whole day, you didn't get enough stuff done. And you're trying to like get time back to yourself because you uh yes yeah like you you did not feel good the whole day doing things you're like now i'm gonna have some sarah's smiling now i'm gonna have some time to myself at night and then you do that and it feels really good and then adhd people tend to stay up later but then the next morning you're tired and your dopamine's lower and the whole process starts over again and Mm -hmm. again when my psychiatrist was like let's get you some sleep aids and i have a little timer on my phone that says bedtime so at nine o'clock i can take my sleep aid and it kind of forces me like I could try to look at it, but it's, I just can't. I have to put it down. But again, I, think, I don't want to advocate sleeping aids for everyone. Like talk to your doctor, psychiatrist, doctor. whatever. This isn't me self-medicating. This is a PhD telling yeah. me. This uh, parents, particularly mothers, I bet resonate with that too, where you feel like you just never get, like you don't get any time for yourself during the day, right? Like it's mm. you're 100% devoted to everybody else. It's the only moment that you get and and it's tough because that's the crucial time that we need to be able to wind down to sleep to be able to have the energy to do everything we need to do. I want to share like a disturbance of sleep that I've been having recently. Um, it's related to being a parent and kids and that's why I wanted to share it because it might be relevant for other people. I can get up early and I can do that sort of thing. Naturally, I tend to wake up around 6 a.m. But for a while there this year, I had gotten to the point where I was up at five and then I was training at 5.30. And I'd give myself some time and just be able to just get on the bike and train. Train at 5.30, that would give me enough time to do a 60 to 90 minute workout. And then I could get ready for the day. But it's our daughter's first year in school. So parents listening to this can probably sympathize with this. The amount of illness going through our home is just insane. I have been sick six times since September. already. I'm sick so today. It's just yeah, it's crazy. So like, um, and it's been a really bad year for that for everybody probably listening to this. So, but because of that, the one thing I've noticed when I was sick and and I would like, you know, when I was sick, I wouldn't train, but even then coming back from it where I'm still a bit sick, but not fully better, I would still do my early morning workouts and I would re I would fall back in my, like in, with the illness instantly. So I've had a personal connection between doing early morning workouts and I can do it otherwise under normal conditions and I'm not ill. But when I'm ill, I cannot do that and continue to recover. I need to prioritize sleep and sleeping in that extra hour to six and then letting myself sleep to 6.30, something like that is so much more beneficial and gets me actually further ahead. So then otherwise, and what I've had to do is make my workout shorter and I do them at lunchtime or something or in the evening and I do shorter ones. I don't do as intensive workouts, but you know what? I still am getting better faster than I would otherwise if I was trying to force myself into the workout, then I revert and fall way back with my sickness and I'm back to square one with it. So like, it's really tricky. I've had to step back and look at it and say, my sleep is more important than nailing these workouts at the time that I want in the scheduling that I want and everything else. I've had to make that adjustment. And that does mean that there's a bit more chaos in my day too. Like it's so nice and you can have your workout done and then you don't have things to worry about later on. But it's just a situation of like good, better, best. And I've had to look at like what is the best thing and the best thing for me lately has been prioritizing sleep and allowing myself to sleep a little bit more and fitting in the training where I can. So if you're listening to this and struggling with that, hopefully that helps. Bad night sleep too can be indicative of like you're uh, overreaching a bit with your training. And- Mm -hmm. 
it's so I'll bring up red light green light now. So that's the one where we're we're giving you yellow or red days in your training uh, in order to adjust your training and give you feedback on how much load you're doing, like short term and long term. And we're reviewing it, and um, we actually did like a whole rebuild of it, and now it's like really really good. I'm so excited. Now it's still in testing, but there's no known issues right now. And looking back at my career, going back from 2018, it's so cool because like you'll see it where on a yellow day and a yellow day, I think we're going to do is we're going to adapt you to an aerobic ride. You can still train. And I want to say too, with red light, green light, we're trying to prevent you getting into a hole. You'd still be able to do the workout on a red day. Like John said, like you could still do it, but it's going to impact you later. Right. And the yellow day where maybe you'll have a, an interval workout, like John said, if you did it, well, maybe then you're gonna have to take extra rest or recovery. If you keep going, you could dig yourself into a hole. And it was so neat that with how it's set up, we looked at my career and I took really good notes back then. And there'd be a yellow day and I would change it to like a Baxter. And then a red day, I would either skip it automatically. I'd have a workout. I just skip it because I felt bad or sometimes I would do it. And then I wouldn't be able to finish it or something or the notes go, this was way harder than it should have been. Or the common thing on me is I would blame it on something else. I'd blame it on like not eating enough. I'm like, I just didn't eat enough when like, but the, yeah. I just was doing too much training load. Like it's the false association, which was something else, which could be uh, sleep too. And then there's a, a couple times too, where I train on like two red days and then I'd be sick three days later and then I don't train for a week. And that's the, I can't wait to like um, give this to everybody and let them go. You're gonna have a history, let you go back and see yes. all the things where it ties up. Cause that's the best sell is if you look in the history and it lines up with either how you felt, I don't know if all you, but you have a scheduled workout and you feel bad, you feel tired and you skip it. Sometimes you're like, ah, oh, man, maybe I'm not tough enough. Maybe I don't have enough grit to do this like other people when really you should have skipped it and you're listening to your body. And that's what we always preach. And that's not what I did a lot, but not all the time. And then it would, it would get you later, but having another, like, you know, us as like a, your coach, to be able to tell you, hey, this is actually a day you should skip that extra affirmation. It just reduces some of that cortisol, some of that stress, right? You don't go to sleep. It's so much nicer, Sarah, right? For if someone goes, yes, you should rest today. You're like, I am tired. I mm -hmm. deserve this rest than being like, yeah. I should have done this workout, man. I guess I just tomorrow I'll wake up early and I'll do a double workout to make up for it. And I'll get the TSS. You know what I mean? Like we've all done that. And then it's never good. So to have that feedback, I am so excited about this feature and it's the the ui i think is done uh, maybe yeah. in mobile apps it has to be finished uh and then i don't know i'm gonna ask after this how close we can get to early access and get some people in here and we're gonna ask some people on the forum too to go with it with us just to double check but it's not gonna be um two to set expectations it's not gonna catch everything everywhere if you're sick and you're coming in and you haven't told us you know you're sick or something of course things could happen but yeah. in general if it reduces the amount of failed workouts you have, even by half, right? If it gets you, makes it so you prevents that hole, that would be a huge, huge uh, win. But I think we can do even better than that. Yeah. So, anyways. two things I, I want to mention with this really quick, Nate. Uh, too much training load. That saying is is very relative and it changes. In my mind, like Nate, you've mentioned before that you're like, yeah, like as soon as I get to the point where I'm doing like 600 TSS over like a six week period and I'm maintaining that average, if I do more than that, it's too much for me. I've heard you say that before. All of us probably have some that are like experienced with training, have some sort of figure in our mind where we set that. I think that's bad to like say that like I, my body can always tolerate 600 TSS because frankly, the season of life that you're in is always changing. And at certain times, 300 TSS is going to be too much for you. And you just... 
it's not about time allocation. It's not about what you've done in the past. It's about how much you can absorb from the training, right? And that's a really important thing. And, and other forms of stress or impacted sleep, poor nutrition, they all affect our absorption rate of that training. And it's really important to like respect that, you know, and to not push yourself to previous standards that, that you've held yourself to under cer different circumstances. That is a, that's such a cool thing to say, too, because some people might think that this is just like the CTL, ATL, TSB thing, where it's just TSS based, but it's not. It takes into account different modes of how much you've actually been doing for stress, but also how hard each one was, how it felt, how um, if you increased your your levels or not, where it's spaced, if uh, like you um, your short term stress, there's like eight other different cat like cat not categories, but like dimensions to it that make it so much more valuable than TSB in order for sensitivity to tell you how you should adapt your training and go forward. It's not just TSS. And I'm mm -hmm. not going to tell the formula because it's proprietary. Yeah. And then there's this other ML layer that's going to get layered onto it, which I don't know, could come sooner, could come later. But when I say that machine learning of predicting and I don't know, it's I should not talk cool. about that yet. I'm not talking about that. Let's just talk about Red Light Green Light. <laughs> okay. Also, if you, have a, if you have a name for it, everybody, um, please put it in the comments. We talked about like fatigue monitor or something like that, but I kind of just yeah. want to call it red light, green light forever um, and just call yeah. it adaptive training. And then we just call it red light, green light. And yeah, it's just, I've just part been saying of adaptive it. training. I'm never going to stop calling it that, I think. Um, <laughs> it's the so. danger of working names, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we made it too close to the actual one. Steve Jobs said yes. this too in his first thing. He called it what? The, uh, the Apple phone or something, right? Instead of the yeah. iPhone. And he started yes. calling it the Apple phone or... Yeah. Yeah. And instead, you got to call it something into like paint can or something that's yeah. like totally irrelevant. Swordfish. To it. Yeah. 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 yeah, swordfish, exactly. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing I want to mention is the fact that this feature is going to protect you from yourself. If you're listening to this, like our eyes get bigger than our stomachs, and we go mm -hmm. and we do that like really fun group ride that was really hard and it was a blast and it was awesome and that's good. And that's not a bad thing, but what it will do is then it will tell you how to adjust the next couple of days. Because a lot of the time we do that group ride, and honestly, I think a lot of because of like the adrenaline we felt during the group ride, the dopamine response we got from that, we felt so great. We don't mm -hmm. feel the impact yeah. of that train of of that ride on us. And then we go into the next day and we think, well, yesterday was awesome. So I should do well today. And then we wonder why we get fatigued. Nate, um, on the forum, I'm not as active on the forum as much anymore. We have Zach and we have Eddie and we have Kato in there and they're amazing. But there were in situations, if an athlete would say, I'm getting tired or I'm getting burnt out or I failed this workout, why did that happen? And whenever I would look into their careers, whenever, like it's, I, I can't think of a single instance when it wasn't this way. Sarah was on the, on, as a community manager too, is the most common mistake is doing too much and it's you know adding in some sort of online race. It's adding in some sort of big group ride. It's doing too much volume. It's the recovery weeks. My goodness gracious. It's people don't respect their recovery weeks and they do too much during them. And this feature will help protect you from that very thing. And that's why I'm super excited about it. Oh, yeah. So uh, this uses workout levels V2 on the on the on the, the below um, the below uh, yeah. at the foundation <laughs> of it. So we're measuring all of your zones inside and outside for this. And this is the cool part. So we are, we're a seasonal company and we have some people suspend during the summer because they go outside and they think we're not worth the money. But this, you can go only outside, never use trainer road inside once your whole life. And it will be, it will work just the same. It'll work exactly the same. That's why we built it. So if you can imagine then just having a, like a fatigue monitor, um, <laughs> 
red light, green light, so that when you train outside all the time, you don't even have to have structured workouts. You don't have to have planned workouts. Just based on what you're doing and what your history is, we can give you those adjustments and we can recommend also, you know, an endurance day or like a rest day. Uh, that's another cool thing is that products can be updated to recommend rest days. Uh, but you don't mm -hmm. need to have that. So at first it's going to launch with, um, you'd have to go to the website to check, but we're going to have notifications on the phone so that just after a ride, you can just see how you did. And then, uh, yeah, get the, uh, that's, hmm. should I talk about the athlete levels? I should. I'm very go excited ahead. today. Yeah. I know, but I love the studies too. So maybe we'll just yes. go long on this or cut it into two or something because yeah, studies are my good. favorite. Yeah. Um, the other thing that we have used inside of this is we built this way we call it fitness score. I've talked about it before, but it's what it generally is, is a absolute number to measure your fitness. So if you think of you have a 200 uh, watt FTP, and your level five threshold. Now, if you're at a 210 FTP, that might be equal to a level two threshold. And what I mean equal is you could be doing the exact same watts for the exact same intervals. But based on what your FTP is, the percentage of that is different. For instance, if you're doing three by 10 at 200 watts, if you're at a higher FTP, you could still be doing three by 10 at 200 watts, but it's a lower percentage of that. But we sure. need some kind of way to make that absolute so that we can compare. What we kind of want to do is uh, do kind of the Peloton model. So it takes all your levels and we can then tell you where you rank against all trainer road athletes. And both like in your um, everyone, your gender, and then your age group and gender. And after each workout, you could see how you change in there. I know we've thought about this a lot. And before we were like, uh, if someone's at like 20,000 and they moved to like, you know, 19,995, mm -hmm. is that going to be um, demotivating to be there? But honestly, we look at Peloton. I have friends who do it. And it's just the move up, right? It's just to be able to have that number. Um, yeah. You don't have to wait for your FTP. And I know workout levels can be kind of confusing like you know a four is higher than a five but all the numbers together it, you can't do that math and figure out where you're at so yeah. i want to be able to have that I and mean, you'd be able to move yourself from the leaderboard if you want it would just show like you know probably your username and uh where your rank is and maybe we can do like country or like area to probably country is high enough too that'd cool. be kind of cool but yeah. i would i think that'd be motivating you can show you after each workout show on your career page let me know if you're interested in it. And if you're not interested in it, you just you can just opt out, right? So it doesn't yep. it doesn't mean we don't have to do it. But there's enough people interested in it, that extra motivation. It would also work for outside. So you would just you could only use outside rides and it would still you would still be ranked because it's yeah. uh, workout levels B2 is the basis of it. I'll and put up a poll on Spotify actually, where people can you. say if they want this, uh they, they can and, put it up there. So it's actually built and it's in our back end because we use it for red light, green light. We just have to expose it, which yeah. is pretty dope. Yeah, it's way deeper than just like Watt KG. And like, you know, just yeah. ranking everybody by Watt KG would not be the same thing at all as this. This is much more nuanced than that. It's really Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because you can be, uh, you, you all have probably experienced it as if you're at like a level two at your at your FTP versus a level eight. Mm -hmm. Eight, you're like flying and you're killing your FTP. And two, you're like, this is new. This is a, it's a new area of town I haven't been in before. Yeah. Uh, and the, the duration and stuff and, and, and what type of racing to, what level it matters. I, I, we can talk about that later, but super excited. Let us know. It's January. Cool. Tell your friends because we want some signups too so you can hire more people and do more things. That's it. Exactly right. We don't dump our money into huge marketing campaigns and stuff like that. Um, we dump it right back into making the product better yeah. for you. Or pro so cycling teams. We don't have investors pro, to pay back either. It's just all goes back into making the product better. So the uh, as we see, the pro cyclists just use us without paying us. <laughs> like <remember laughs> <It's the> <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. Right. yeah. We don't have to pay them. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
All right, I'm going to get into my study here. Uh, this is a 2022 study by Gaio and colleagues. Uh, it's called Relationships Between Training Dose and Record Power Outputs in Professional Road Cyclists, Insights and Threats to Validity. So this one instantly caught my mind because it's really cool because it's looking at PRs in terms of like how can we train the tra change the training dose? What variables can we change to then get PRs out of athletes? But here's the really interesting thing. It's in the study design. So this is an observational longitudinal cohort study, which basically means they didn't intervene and give somebody like an experiment to do. Instead, they just observed data and they did it longitudinally. That means over a long time course with a specific selection of people, in other words, a cohort. And the goal, their stated goal was to explore the association between training dose and performance. And what really they were trying to look at is basically like what changes can we make and how training is dosed, uh, duration, intensity, that sort of thing. And if those changes are happening and going on, how does it affect power output? And this is the cool thing. They looked at data from 2016 to 2019, so a four-year time period, and they looked at ride files from 46 male professional cyclists that were part, that were belonged to World Tour teams. Whoa. Now- this is this is really interesting. Within this cohort, they had a person, an athlete that won Olympic gold, another one that won a world championship, that won Giro de Lombardia, and also won at least one stage of all three Grand Tours. So they had we're talking peak of peak the of the peak. Yep, the peaky the spear. peak. <laughs> exactly right. The swordfish. So, yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, and for the on the data side of things, what did they look at from all of these athletes? They looked at ride files. Uh, so they looked at power data primarily. That's what they looked at. But they also looked at HR, and we'll get into that in just a sec. Um, but what they did is uh, not all cyclists had a full four years of data, but every cyclist at least had one year of data. And that makes sense because of cyclists changing teams throughout that time period of 2016 to 2019. Um, rides with incomplete data or seemingly like uncalibrated data that would provide like they'd be an outlier that's super high or super low, they were throw out or they were thrown out. And so they weren't included in this. And to be included, the rider needed to have for a, like a month of data to be included, the rider needed to have at least 20 ride files per month. And that's important because then we aren't getting to a spot where let's say half of these athletes got injured or sick and they did that all the time, then we would have all of that data dragging down the averages. So in this case, they had to have 20, which basically was indicative of a consistent training month for them, like the floor of a consistent training month. What did they measure? So what they looked at with this data was overall time spent training. They looked at something called eTrimp, and TRIMP is effectively like a way to use heart rate to try to quantify training load. Similar in respect to TSS, and it predates TSS actually, um, but TSS supersedes that at least in our perspective in terms of getting a better indication of training load. And they also measured TSS, and then they measured time and zone. They did it with a three-zone model. And I'm going to break down those three zones because this is really important. It's going to be important later on here. But first, they, they noted that they defined FTP with 20-minute tests where they took 5% of the average power for the 20-minute interval. So that's standard. Um, so if you're wondering if the FTPs were there, that's how they did it. And then their zone one was anything less than or equal to 79%, which is unorthodox. Zone two was 80 to 99% of their FTP. And zone three was anything equal to or greater than 100% of FTP. We'll get so, into the specifics of that and the implications, or actually, yeah. Nate, if you want to get into it now. Well, let's just talk about it. So zone yeah. two, 80 to 99, that's going to be the very tippy top of tempo, but mostly like sweet spot. And then a yes. teeny bit of like how we would define it, like the 96, 7, 8, like threshold. 
but yes. that's like kind of that with if you look at polarized that would be the no man's land of death but also yes. the um zone one on this one kind of goes higher i think than other polarized up to 79 right like what is what is the normal it's common polarized? to say uh, well i mean theoretically it should adhere from lt1 to lt2 or yeah. vt1 to vt2 um, which typically falls closer to 70 to 75 percent not 80 percent um, 80% is typically understood if it's an accurate FTP is you are over LT1 and you're squarely in that center ground. So that is unorthodox and that's an interesting choice and that will matter in a bit. They also measure the polarization index, which is basically looking at the time spent in those zones, weighing them, running an equation like a logarithmic equation through that. And then what they do is they basically have a polarization index and any value above 2.0 is considered to be polarized. We now we know that there's a lot of varying definitions of polarized, <laughs> and there's a lot of uh, debate and confusion uh, that exists with polarized. Some people affirm that it must be 80-20. Uh, then at other times, you'll see even the same people that are experts on the matter say that, no, it's 90-10, or somewhere in between the two. Then you'll see other people say it has nothing to do with time and zone, and instead it's all about training and tension for the days prescribed. There's a lot of confusion with it. But regardless... This polarized index is a way to be able to tell how much time was spent basically outside of that middle ground and if it looked like a normal training or polarized training intensity distribution, which falls between 80% in zone one and 20% in zone three. And then the upper end of that is typically considered somewhere around 90 to 95% in zone one. And then you'd see somewhere between 10 to 5%, um, obviously, in zone three. So these are the things that they measured. And then in terms of performance measurements or outcomes, they measured a record power output for one minute, five minute, 20 minute, and 40 minute power. Now, here's the interesting thing. They looked at this at different time periods because remember they have four years of data. So the first one they had was called monthly analysis. And it's a month by month examination of the relationship between training load over the previous four weeks and performance over the subsequent four weeks. And they consider data from all months within the four-year study period, okay? So that's important to keep in mind. Then the other ones that they did is they looked at the preceding eight weeks of training, and then they looked at power output records during the following. All goal races, grand tours, and one-day races. Or in other words, think of like the spring classics that we typically have. So that's all the data. That's what they looked at. And honestly, it's kind of a nothing burger in terms of results. When you look at the study, um, and I don't... I, I don't um, you know, poor researchers, they basically had to say like the way that they summarize this, they're like a certain degree of responsiveness to training dose does exist in professional cyclists. <laughs> That's like the most like <laughs> middle ground, not exciting thing uh, to get from the, from the research. But basically, other insights. And, yeah, there are other insights. And if you look at the tables and, and everything else that we'll be showing on screen here, for monthly analysis, they found, and this is looking at correlation coefficients and for anybody unfamiliar with that, correlation coefficients, if you have anything that's like a small to moderate correlation coefficient, that isn't going to be something that's going to say, oh, wow, even though it looks like it's above the zero barrier, it's not something that's significant to the point where it's going to say, yes, indeed, this absolutely has an effect like a, a, a tight correlation. Um, instead, that should show that there's some sign of something that possibly exists, but it's not a causal relationship or anything else like that. And if you look at the monthly analysis, everything sits between small and moderate. And the only one that we see that isn't like that, that's slightly higher, is just general training time, which makes sense. If you train more, you get more, right? That makes sense there. And remember, we're dealing with like the tip of the spear, professional athletes, so they can train a lot. 
But then if you look at all goal races, everything is small to moderate, even like rated at trivial, a lot of the stuff. If you look at Grand Tours, it does show that time at higher intensity, so zone three, does seem to have a, an actual effect. Um, so then that makes sense, right? You're training hard, so you need to do hard stuff. And you look at specialty phases. Specialty phases typically have you spending time at specific intensities that you'll face on race day. So again, this just backs up like traditional periodization that you see with specialty phase and that sort of prescription. Polarized index does go up a touch there, but it's still small to moderate and leaning towards small. And then one day races, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, that's where you get like a lot of variance throughout this. Um, so anyways, they have a few different takeaways on this. And really in the end, like I said, there's not really anything that stands out that's something really big. And in the discussion, they noted something really important. They said that perhaps the reason that they saw little differences because the cohort was just so homogenous, like they're dealing with the best cyclists in the world with tightly controlled training that are likely so close to the point of human potential right? So when mm -hmm. you have everybody looking the same, you're probably not going to get a whole lot of difference in the data. You might say that you could get really strong consensus from this, but clearly the data is showing here that it's not a whole lot of change. And it's probably because these athletes don't fall far away from peak form. Whereas maybe you and I listening to this, we really fall away from peak form. And oh, even yeah. though this, this, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and even though this did measure like through the base phase and through everything, again, four years of data, you and I likely see a whole lot more improvement year over year in our FTP and our performance coming from off season to peak, whereas they're probably always pretty darn good. But I wanted to share some of my observations and questions with this. Okay. So first on volume, they noted that 900 to 950 hours per year average was something that had been noted in previous studies and that their data does back this up is typically what pro cyclists do in order to perform at this sort of level. But they also noted that it came out to about 22 hours per week. So if you do some basic math, that's that not assumes, 2200. That's uh, yeah, right. Exactly, right? Yeah. So if you do some basic math, and I'm assuming that they did their math, they, they have more access to the data than we do. That would assume that cyclists take nine weeks off per year. They do take more time off probably than we think. We have this thing in our mind that like pro cyclists are always riding, but they probably do take off more time than we think. There's also the average may not represent the like inner week variation that we see. Uh, going on with with volume. But even assuming that this like that's the case, it still is likely that it's more than three weeks off. So this is for all of us listening to this that fret over taking one to two weeks off in an off season. And we're like, I'm just so far. Off. Yeah, I'm so far behind. Yeah. Like this is hard data that shows that pro cyclists are more than likely taking at least three weeks off the bike in the year. Now, whether that's scattered throughout, I don't know whether that's all packed in. Who's to say? But that's just reassuring to me to know that I can tell that little voice in my head that I need to keep training, I need to keep training to just shut up and chill and that it's okay, right? It's not the end of the world. I want to um, have you say that out loud, at least when you're walking around. <laughs> shut up and chill. Just like to yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, could, I could deal with that scene, to be honest. So, um, and then if you look at like the actual training volume, assuming that they're training six days per week, that would be about three hours and 40 minutes per day that these athletes are training. And and I think that's less than what a lot of us assume. Like we just have in our mind that Vanderpool's going out there doing eight hours every day. Recently, there's been a lot of talk about how Keegan does a huge amount of volume in these big days and occasionally does do those camps, but there's a lot of smaller days within there. And I think that that's another good re like reassurance, right, Sarah, that like, oh, okay, like I don't have to be going out and doing seven and eight hours every day. 
even the pros don't do that much you know it i think that's an effect of like social media though as well is like because i've had i have that perception of keegan because i follow him on instagram <laughs> and i see like him posting like his uh his um bike uh what by my sphinx by computer like yeah. on like seven plus hours and i'm like oh my goodness <laughs> but then I like know. he's not gonna it's not exciting to post a you know an hour recovery ride that we don't yeah. see so um it's understandable that we we create these perceptions in our head but yeah mm -hmm. definitely not the case yeah and nate actually along these lines i don't know if you know this too sir but keegan recently made his strava private and it was a discussion of uh it was a topic of discussion on our forum people were like "Ooh, what's he doing you know mm. um which if i'm his competition and i saw him sharing information so publicly that was quite frankly intimidating about how much he was doing and what he trained i'm really worried now if he makes it private so um <laughs> so that's my assumption there um, but then on intensity, I want to talk a little bit about this. So first of all, I wonder how often FTP tests were performed and updated. I don't know. And they don't mention that. And some cyclists, some like pro cyclists, they, they get pretty stubborn on, on adjusting FTP or doing something like that. And they try to avoid it. If they just had AI FTP detection, they wouldn't have to worry about it. They wouldn't have to worry about testing anxiety. So go ahead, sign up for it. But the main thing I want to talk, talk about here is the three zone model and those demarcations that are kind of unique with zone one being so going so high up in the intensity spectrum, zone two being so small in the intensity spectrum, and then zone three being normal. That's 100 and above. But based on table one, now I'm, we're going to be showing this on screen. I'm going to read off what these intensity values are so everybody can see them. But based on table one, these these athletes are not following a polarized training intensity distribution. They're following a pyramidal training intensity distribution. So I'm going to break this down really quick. And this is the one that's looking at, again, this is four years of data. This is looking throughout the year. Okay. So this is the lowest I'm seeing is 74% of their time was spent in zone one. The highest I'm seeing is 76% of their time spent in zone one. Yeah. Plus or minus five, but yep. just... Yeah, good point. Thanks, Nate. Yep. Now, and this, these are the averages that I'm reporting. Now, the averages that I'm seeing for zone two, it's 16% across the board, plus or minus three to four. Okay? So that's way higher because, remember, zone two is the gray zone. You're not supposed to touch it. Like, no, <laughs> that's no, like I, the, I was told pro athletes don't touch that. Exactly right. <laughs> Many times. Yes. Lots of videos. Even <laughs> directed I would say at you were, us. <laughs> yes. And even yelled at on the internet, Nate. <laughs> yes. Like in forums and stuff. And then in zone three, which remember, they're going to be spending anywhere likely around 20% in zone three to 10%, maybe 5% if they're training a ton, right? I'm seeing the lowest is 8%. The highest is 9% for the average. And I'm seeing plus or minus two to three on that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So... That is not a polarized training intensity distribution where you see the, br the brunt of it down low in zone one, some of it in zone three, and then trace amounts, if any, in zone two, right? Yeah. And I want to say too, like, so the PI, the polarized index is like around 1.6-ish, goes 1.5. And they said too that they're, so if you're polarized, you're above two, right? So they're not polar, like by definition, polarized. John said there was a slight association with PI with performance. Um, the one with the highest PI, again, it's not polarized, is the one-day race analysis. And something just in my head thinks that those one-day races have the highest power output because they're looking at the, the highest PRs for those those um, the with the time frames up to forty minutes versus a Grand Tour or like your training. 
you're going to have your highest power outputs in those one day uh, spring classics, right? And I think that's maybe why there's a slight, slight edge, but it's still a difference between 1.58 and 1.61 for polarized, polarized index. Mm -hmm. So it's very, very, very slight. Yeah, and the interesting thing is that you could have the assumption that with one-day races, because we know a lot of one-day races happen in close time frame. So, you know, you have Roubaix, you have Flanders, then you have, you know, three days of Depane. You have, like, tons of races going on even in the middle of weeks, and it's it's a very race-heavy season. So you could be thinking very hard efforts and then very easy efforts that they do um, and because they're just recovering in between all these races. But if you look at the training intensity distribution for those ones, again, we're talking about the eight weeks leading up to these events. It's not like the, in fact, it's the lowest in terms of the time spent in Z1. So it's, it's kind of interesting to see that it's not that polarized training intensity distribution. Now, I want to be clear though. So this stands at odds with, a lot of the narrative that's been pushed with polarized training, which isn't necessarily all coming from the same source. There's a lot of misunderstanding. There's a lot of everything else that's been handed out with it. And as a result, I think that there's a lot of people that are holding it to very strict things and saying every pro trains this way. And remember that came from like a observational study that was on a very a much smaller cohort than we're dealing with here with a much smaller time course than we're dealing with here. This is way well, more it, data. It, it, a different so, sport too, right? And a different sports. Skiing. Yeah, that's exactly. the, the different Running, sport is the cross-country skiing, lots of stuff like that. Yeah. So this is totally different and it stands at odds with like, even though there are in a lot of common interpretations of the Norwegian method and which a lot of people just say is polarized training and it's not polarized training. It's There's a whole lot more to what the Norwegians do in terms of how they train and manage their athletes to have such incredible success. Um, but anyways, I just feel like this suggestion to like, Polarize your training for one day for one day races doesn't neatly support the general guidelines with polarized training either that state that you should more heavily polarize your training further from your event. Because if you listen to that too, it's like, no, no, you polarize most heavily when you're further away from your event. And then when you get closer to your event, you might do a little bit less. Um, and then again, there's varying perspectives on that because, and the reason that you would do less is because you're prioritizing specificity more than just the training intensity distribution. So if your event has you working in zone two, then you would do that as you get closer to the event. Um, I know that there's competing schools of thought and understanding, even on that, where some people say, no, polarizing your training closer to your event allows for more freshness and that way you could do it. But regardless what the data shows, and I feel like this is Maybe the most comprehensive set of data that's been publicly published. This is a study from 2022, so this is pretty darn recent. And this one shows that it, it isn't that way. And also, I bet that there's athletes doing more polarization and less polarization. You can see that even in the graphs. You'll see that it's like flexing around there. I think we all just need to chill a little bit on like the getting so angry about training intensity distribution and people freaking out about it. Um and this is data that shows that indeed you can still win a world championship, win the Olympic games, do all of those things and not be polarized strictly like this. So I think but it's John, imagine, imagine if they were, and <laughs> imagine if they were keto at the same time, like, Oh no, <laughs> just kidding. I'm we're sorry. poking a lot of bears. <laughs> yeah. And they had alkaline water in the, in the carnivore diet. And they like, got rid of toxins too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be great. Oh, if they did a detox before the race, dude. <laughs> and no, amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And no processed foods. Like they would just the um, I mean that's that one's a little bit. Yeah, I should just, uh, that I kind of do agree with. Uh, um, other interesting thing on this is that their TSS. So the on the monthly analysis. So that's Ooh. the one that was before the race season. They're averaging around. It's a little bit of a flux, but eight to nine hundred TSS. Uh, 
a week. So if you consider like a, uh, a recovery weekend there, that's probably down to, I don't know, five, 600 or something like that. You're going to probably get around a thousand TSS per week. So anyone here, I know I've tried to do an 800 TSS week with a full-time job as a yeah. dad. And like, I remember Pete was like, you do the 800 TSS week, you'll be flying if you survive, right? Like, and red light, green light would, would, would kill me. Um, I remember 600 TSS weeks. I've been looking back at my training so much. I, I would kind of fly for a little bit and then I would crash and burn and need recovery. Just if you're, these are the best, these are the very best athletes in the world, not just cyclists. Mm-hmm. Like I think, you know, cycling has some of the best athletes in the world uh, for aerobic engines and they're not doing some of the crazy stuff that you might be trying to do with all your rest of your life. And they have chefs, right? And like yes. everything is, <laughs> is aligned for them and the stress and the mechanics and stuff like that. Uh, another interesting thing is that the, the time and zone that the pyramidal part about it, their mm-hmm. zone three is half of zone two. So even with this smaller, like if they would have used the traditional polarized zones where zone two would have been bigger because zone one, like they're going to put some tempo stuff. That would be the gray zone into zone one here. Yeah. Uh, it would be even, like, diff- even be even more pyramidal, it'd be, right? It would be even more, right? So right now they're doing in a month, 12 hours of zone two of this is like sweet spot stuff. Uh, where and then for the zone three above threshold and above it's six and Mm -hmm. that held true to the entire season except the one day this is the eight week period for the one day race analysis they did eight weeks so 22 so if you divide by 12 um so the same amount of zone two but they did a half an hour more in zone three over four week period half an hour over you know that's and that's probably because they're in races and they're just forced to do yeah. that right well, during especially that time. but it's still classics yeah yeah it's so close to that and uh, i don't know i just I, I love this uh study for affirmation that in cycling it because great if someone else shows us a big study that shows the opposite of this mm-hmm. but this is the very tippity top right and this is an anecdote this is how many was it 46 over four years 46 over four years so we're dealing yep. with thousands of files that are that are being uh, a scale of thousands of files. We're not dealing with a handful, right? So, mm-hmm. and at yeah. least you could maybe there's an argument saying that polarize is just as fast, but yes, mm-hmm. um, and th- I mean exist. that because this shows this, it doesn't disprove polarized, right? Yeah, absolutely. But this does show that if you train this way, it doesn't prevent you from winning a gold medal, exactly. world tour, uh, huge races. And I'm guessing to being a professional athlete, like where, you know, this doesn't prevent you from being at the highest level in the world, a world tour And that was the narrative, right, Nate, is that you literally can't be good unless you are training at that. And that was like the narrative for a really long time. And I think it was excessively restrictive. And this shows that there's multiple ways to be able to to achieve that, you know. And too, what what we've always said, too, is, you know, there's there's amount of... because you say, why don't you do this percentage at like, I do two hours per week. Why don't I do the same percentages as a world tour writer? Well, you can do, um, you still need the intensity and then there's only so much intensity a person can take. Then you fill it in with those other long endurance rides. And if you were to scale it down and you're only doing, I don't know, uh, I could do the math right now, but just a few minutes of VO two max per week. And then a couple more, twice as much of, of zone two of sweet spot stuff, that wouldn't be enough. Um, mm-hmm. And that's kind of why, and especially with time crunch, and then there's there's the extra adaptability where a lot of us don't have hours to do it. You might only have a max of eight hours, and yep. that's it. So how that's much can you, you take for eight hours, right? Uh, 
and there might be some kind of shift with more intensity. Hopefully red light, green light can help people if they're, um, you know, doing outside rides too and where to be, but it is very tricky to be an age grouper, have limited time, have stress in your life and then want to compete at like a national level. Cause that's what like the high volume plans are for people at like national levels. And we've even had people win national championships and world championships on less yes. than high volume. So I want to yep. say that too. High volume is not for everybody and it's probably not for you. Um, yeah. Most <laughs> yeah, likely wondering about it. Yeah. And, and we tell you not to do it also, like, unless you click on that thing, we're going to give you a warning unless we think it's for you. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of funny. And I want to, and smart. I want to make sure people understand the fact that like, we have polarized plans. Our master's plans follow a lot of pl principles similar to polarized plans. They don't have a strict 80, 20 to 90, 10. I personally have followed uh, polarized plans over the last three years now at different points. I've been bouncing back and forth between strict polarized pyramidal four years now. So <clears throat> this is not as if we are like on one side of a fence. Rather, we have both options. We understand both. And what we're advocating is that there's room for both. And we don't need to take this exclusionary stance of just like, oh, block everything yeah. off if it's not this, you know. And the master's plans, the, the, the only difference, it's a pyramidal s approach. But instead of three days intensity, there's two days intensity. So for those who uh, aren't recovering between those, you have more aerobic rides, depending on the volume you're at, or you just have one less day of intensity. And like we said, that's a lot of people. It's not just for older people, but for people who are poor recoveries, um, carnivore diet. <laughs> just kidding. Um, <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> you saw the Liver King stuff? That's crazy. I don't know. The, uh, uh, well, even some... just Sarah's, Sarah's video that she just posted, which we'll link to here in this one. Man, it brought out some angry commenters. So because uh, Sarah reviewed the current research that we have on keto diets and some great stuff. It's a very fair and balanced view on it. And uh, keto people weren't happy. So, yeah, it was good. <laughs> All right, Sarah, do you want to go into your next study? Yeah, this one uh, was looking at perfectionism in athletes and uh, the relationship between perfectionism and the relationship to well to performance, burnout, and training stress. According to research, um, there are two domains of perfectionism. One is perfectionistic concerns, which is characterized by a fear of mistakes, judgment from others, and not reaching your own expectations. Um, and then on... I feel attacked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks for describing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, then there's the there's the other side of perfectionism, which I think also applies to you, Jonathan. So, um, and this has. Well, we'll get into it, but um, the perfectionistic striving is characterized by setting very high standards um, and striving for perfection. It's not fear-based, um, it's approach-orientated. It could potentially be, be reframed as the pursuit of mastery. So this study, the purpose of it was that they tested the two dimensions and their association with the commonly cited pitfalls of perfectionism. I think perfectionism can be romanticised in the general public, but it's well known within the scientific community and um, sports scientists that there are pitfalls to perfectionism. And those are an increased risk of burnout, overtraining, uh, training distress, and a reduction in uh, perceived performance. Mm. So, I, one, one really yeah. quick thing, that reduction in perceived performance, would that be like when you win and everyone is like really excited for you and you're like, oh, but it sucks because I didn't, you know, break my previous record or something else like that. That's like 
my even yeah. though like my performance stands here but i have this almost like a, a dysmorphia that i have in terms of my perception of of the the actual level that i'm performing at it's never enough yeah, because it's not perfect yeah. right yeah i can imagine so i can think of that with it, this within like team sports so if um i'm playing soccer i like after the game i can always think and it's a little bit more um subjective because like you can still win within the team sport and still play um badly and when i'm reflecting i often like the things that come up for me or like all the things that I could have done better or missed or whatever. So that could be, yeah, like you're saying, it's never being happy with the result regardless of what the actual objective result is. So the participants in the study were all uh, teenagers who participated in a variety of different sports uh, who competed at regional and national levels. So these were good athletes. They were given a questionnaire that assessed overtraining symptoms, measures of burnout, um, and then um, assess what kind of form and if um, their perfectionism took so like assessing the different traits of um, perfectionism and they did this before at baseline at three months and then at six months um, so at three different time points um, so what did they find did either domain of perfectionism have um, stronger associations with these like negative outcomes um, of perfectionism or negative uh, character uh, symptoms, symptoms yeah. of perfectionism, maybe mm -hmm. I think. And what they found were was that the perfectionistic concerns. So what we typically understand as perfectionism, the fear of judgment and um, kind of holding yourself to probably unrealistic um standards um, and being rigid with them. That. Uh, domain of perfectionism was associated with uh, burnout scores, training distress, and a reduced perception of performance, which is not totally surprising. On the other hand, uh, perfectionistic striving, so the other domain of perfectionism, was associated with an increased perception of performance and was negatively associated with burnout, uh, reduced sense of accomplishment, and a feeling of not getting much value or enjoyment from sport. So overall, I think that would suggest that uh, perfectionistic concerns are maladaptive and not conducive to um, sporting performance, uh, and perfectionistic striving is um, associated with positive outcomes. Mm. But I think before this is like kind of a reductive probably simplistic conclusion because in reality the two traits come hand in hand yeah um so you know the perfectionistic someone who is high in profession perfectionistic striving is also often um high in the trait of perfectionistic concerns so i think when we think about what we can learn from this is that perfectionism necessarily isn't a positive trait to to strive for, but there are things that we can take from it that will um, enhance our performance potentially. Like if we think about the big pool of endurance athletes in particular, I think there are a lot of perfectionists within endurance sports, and the people who I known to excel do not get caught up in the. Um, fear of judgment they're able to have some flexibility with their standards and I think what this research might suggest is that people who have those winning mindsets um, are able to hone in on the perfectionistic strivings but let go of the perfectionistic concerns yeah um H yeah. how 
like that. Uh, I don't know uh, because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, self love coach Sean. Like no, I'm, I'm seriously because you you link your value to your outcome, and that's like mm-hmm. you are worthy of love just the way you are, without either having performed for someone, performing for yourself, getting acceptance. It's kind of deep and crazy, but yeah, that's it. Because yeah. that's and that's something that. Because I feel like I've made some progress in this regard, and and I'm being very transparent here. I feel like I'm like standing in front of everybody, you know, like but good for you. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I I feel like I've made some progress, but I've chalked it up to just like I guess I've just matured. But I don't have any like I don't have any roadmap of how that happened to get to the point where I didn't feel like no matter what I did, it was never enough, you know. And that's because and I still struggle with that for sure. There are certain areas where honestly, I think like in some respects looking back, I had these really big high pressure cooker things where I completely like imploded. And I'm thinking of like once we got to the point where a lot of people started listening to the podcast Nate and I started showing up at races and like I started to realize that a lot of people were paying attention to how I did. Oh, it was mm-hmm. just so hard to manage that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really tough. And I think I got to one point when I, like, I, I had bad results and everything else. And at, at one point, I just kind of like absolutely hit rock bottom, so to speak, like emotionally from the whole thing that I was able to like rebuild from there. But it was really, you know, it, a really painful thing to go through and like really tough to go through that sort of thing. And it's still hard. I still make make mistakes in other aspects, not just in the sporting context, but... I don't know if any of you guys, like Nate, you said the self-love coach. I don't know if there's anything else yeah. that you found. You, you too. Yeah. I mean, growing up, you, you had a very, you're a competitive athlete growing up. And to be a competitive athlete growing up, you have to be very, very perfect and precise to do all these things really that normal, you know, regular kids probably don't do. And that's another layer of pressure. And then you come here and you got 100,000 people a week listening to you being like, mm-hmm. if John doesn't do well, trainer road doesn't work. Right, like yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Right, it's kind of crazy to think about that kind of pressure. Because the comments when you do well, people are go, people are like when you do well, people are like you say, yeah, look, trainer rope works, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. And when it doesn't work, it's like yeah, exactly. Yeah, sorry, Nate. I think the root of it, and I didn't realize this for a long time for my own self, it's the like because what I would do is I'd overperform or I'd overgive or like be like a white knight or something, um, because that was like my value was tied to that, and even just like you know successful entrepreneur and that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm would I be good enough for somebody or, or stuff if I didn't do these things, right? Do I have to be so much better than before in order for someone to be able to love me and that sort of stuff? And um, that's the that's exactly what I was working on with Jess, the love coach on Instagram of like, you are, you are lovable without any of that. And John, Sarah would love you if your FTP was one you're not Sarah Laverty. Not My me. Wife, Sarah. <laughs> yeah. you're, you're, you're Sarah Lee. Yeah. yeah. With, with, um, but Sarah Laverty would still like you, right? Like yes. With with all of that, yeah. and um, then the people. This is the kicker. This is the real big th- realization. The people that do not, if you don't do these things, they don't belong in your life, and you have boundaries to keep them out. The people who only do that, only like you because you perform, or only you know, and the work thing has a whole other aspect. But the people who you know, get, if you are, if for anxious people, if you're air quotes needy and you need something from them, you need their attention or you need some reassurance and they're like, ah, oh, you're so needy. And you're like, okay, I, I just won't do that. Cause they won't love me or that I don't want to be upset. Actually, you're fine. You're perfect. Your needs are, 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 uh, valid. It's the boundary. They're the one that shouldn't be in your life rather than you need to change. And like, I need to be less needy. It's them. That's the problem. That's the crazy like realization. And you're like, oh my gosh, you're right. And then you can think of that and because plenty of people will be reassure you and stuff. And then the people that do reassure you in your life and for this is for anxious people and that are good, 
um, then you're not needy anymore, right? You're just like, you feel calm and safe. That's the yeah. boom, crazy. I yeah, think conceptually, though, that's really, I think most of us understand that. Like, we understand that, or we've been told, um, well, being told in some ways, but maybe not in other ways, mm-hmm. that, like, we are worthy. But I think sometimes you have to lose all of it. Like you have to lose your, so if you are, have attached your value to whether it's like work or uh, school or athletic performance, like I had to stop training for a long time and like my identity was very closely wrapped around my performance, but I had to stop like like the training and uh, competing and stuff. And it was almost like I had to be forced to to let go of that association and once I did then I realized that um my worth or your value isn't in in those things but I don't think that ever let go of that other side of the perfectionism which is the perfectionistic striving and Mm -hmm. that part was innate to me but the perfectionistic concerns were I don't know where they come from but they're maybe just like culture you can only give your 100% in that moment or that day um and I think like being forced then to to realize that people actually are still there once you lose everything that you've tied your identity to i think that helps like disentangle um, you bring up a really good point because you can have the same action with two different motivations one being maladaptive and one being pretty good like for john being a perfectionist there's two there's one of like hey this is really fun i'm getting i love training let's see what happens and and you can kind of feel that in your body john you probably like when that happens the other way that i'm training i have anxiety if i don't perform i'm a bad person Right. That's the, like the maladaptive, but the outcome, like the what the visually what you've seen someone do is the same. And this is too with with me with in relations and stuff. If, am I overgiving? Am I listening to this person on the phone or talking to this person because I'm afraid that if I don't, they're going to leave me? Or is it because I have the space right now and the empathy and the space in my own life in order to listen to this person and talk to them and do it and because I want to or because I love them? And I know that if I don't, they still won't leave me. And if they do leave me, then I just want them in my life, right, of my own boundaries. And same with Sarah. What she just said is sometimes it's driven by anxiety, but other times when that anxiety goes away, it's like, no, I just like to. It's just fun, right? Yeah. This is is my part. And I think that you talk about, like, Keegan is a good point. Keegan, he's so chill, right? He does not get anxious, like he, I've never seen him be um, the word like neurotic. I don't see him with that. He's just like, yep, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to lay it down and like put her down and, you know, yeah, exactly. put the gas and diesel or something. Yeah. Roll call. For, <laughs> yeah. He's just very, very chill. And he doesn't have that, uh, that anxious side that some of us do or anxiety. John, yeah. you say something? Yeah. This has really been interesting to go through because you get a whole different lens on yourself when you have kids. And you might, and also with coworkers and stuff, you can see like just the people that you closely relate with. And with my son, Simon, he has all those tendencies even further and a lot of anxiety wrapped around like, so he knows his whole life growing up, he's like, and even like when we ride on chairlifts, like we'll ride on the chairlift and somebody will be like, oh, you're a coach, Jonathan. It's great to like, so he has this like experience where he feels like his dad is somebody that's known and he feels this responsibility to like, be oh. remarkable and oh, it's ouchy. really really hard and ouchy. that's why he hates bikes like at first when he was a kid he spent like eight hours a day on his strider and at bedtime like when we were pulling him off and he was like you know with his helmet still on and we were putting him in bed he was screaming at us right like he loved it but he got to some point where he was like oh i need to be like my dad and i am sure that i likely 
caused some of that. I was always striving to never do that, but I'm sure that I did. Like I, I just just by seeing you, know, you, I'm sure it's there. Yeah, even without your motivation, even your motivation was all pure. Just seeing you at a high level. Yeah, and and I actually had a realization. Sorry, this is, but hopefully this is helpful for people. But I had a realization that I was I was reflecting a lot of that anxiety that I had also just in meetings, like with Sarah and like other people. It, it worked too, and I was in in a way not intentionally, but imposing like those same standards upon other people. And, and, um, anyways, it's been really helpful for me to wake up to that and to recognize that it's okay for me to feel those things. It's okay for me to step back and to be able to work through them and then to be able to initiate in conversations or anything else. And like, uh, skiing's like my son loves skiing, loves it. And it's totally different. It's funny. Cause, um, he's always skiing with me and, and I'm, always like my mind is always on technique, but it's been really fun to just completely let go of that and to just instead just focus on fun and to, to help out with that. So it's, it's a really tough thing to break. And for a lot of us type A athletes, we feel like it's what drives us towards success. Mm-hmm. And we're afraid that if we drop it, we will stop being successful. But I think that like you said, Sarah, if we can disentangle this and understand that there's perfectionistic striving, and then there's the maladaptive effects of perfectionism, if we can start to look at our life and recognize examples where we've exemplified either side of that, that might help us understand the fact that, oh, no, 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 I can keep some of this and it can help me and I can lose the bad stuff and it's not going to hurt me. This goes Mm -hmm. back to two things we were talking about. I would say three things here. One is that um, first red light, green light, having that extra person be like, yeah, you should take today off right? Like, yeah, this is like, you don't need to do more. That is really helpful to get that, to remove part of that anxious side to have like a buddy inside of there, um, telling you what, what you can and can't do or what we suggest, um, to the pro athletes. They're not doing as much as we thought for TSS. We've run polarized models like training plans through our AFU detection and pyramidal. They came out the same, which is crazy. What match for TSS. So like, I don't think that's going to be a huge concern that like do whichever one you are going to actually complete, and you're going to do what you want. I hope someone doesn't cut me at like we, I wish I would have mentioned that earlier because we can get cut and like people will say just certain oh, yeah. words we said, not the whole thing out of context, but I want to make sure to say in our minds, the, the, the polarized is just as effective as pyramidal for um, our cohort of athletes, which is probably you not, we don't have the data on the grand tour riders. Some of these people are not enough because we have 30 million, no, sorry, 30 million trainer road into side rides, but our whole data set is like, 220 million or something it's like that huge. is Over crazy with every yeah, yeah 250 <laughs> with everyone's history too going back through their whole career so that's that's a lot of data but it's focused on age groupers um and the third one is i hate the like boomer idea of if it's worth doing it's worth doing well and uh mm-hmm. as a dad I, i've mentioned this before but there's like some things you don't have to do you don't have to do well at all some like things you just don't have to do some things you can do good there's good enough and then there's perfect and uh you know, the perfect stuff, like if you're a spinal surgeon, do a perfect surgery, like tell my kids. But <laughs> yes. other than that, like yeah. clean your room. Does it need to be perfect? No. Like, do you make your bed perfectly? Not really. Like, it's going to stress <laughs> your life out if all these little things have to be perfect all the time. Um, there's something you love. Even like a, a painting. We talk about the pots method here. Like, do we want to make a perfect uh, podcast? No. But we make a whole bunch of podcasts. Are we going to get really good at it? Yeah. Right. Imagine if we just had one perfect podcast. We'd never release a podcast. Exactly. Um, this one's pretty perfect, though. And kudos to John. I think this is the deepest. <laughs> this is the deepest John has ever gone, I think, emotionally on the podcast. So I think people should give you some like uh, this is vulnerable. And for, as a perfectionist, being vulnerable 
super hard, right? Because you just show oh, yeah. people, I'm not perfect. <gasps> oh, yeah. Oh, gosh, does it feel? I can just tell the anxiety in your chest mm-hmm. right now. Good for, <laughs> yeah. good for you, John, though. We're here to support you. And, like, like you've helped so many people through this podcast. Like, so yeah. many. Uh, and then through the product. Like, um, I wouldn't doubt if it's over a million. And, like, you should take a lot of, like, uh, credit in that and stuff, too. Like, we're here to support you. We we'll give it back to Thanks, you. Nate. Yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah. I'm going to do a breathing exercise after this episode. It's going to help. So we did, um, we did breath work at work. Remember, we had someone come in. Was Wasn't great. that amazing? So oh, that's what wonderful. you do with like Jess, too. Uh, we have a recording yeah. of that somewhere, too, if you want to have it. But yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Um, this is really cool, Sarah. So, like, I'm thinking about adaptive training, too. It follows principles that could help, that definitely help me with this. There have been like uh, just recently I did a workout and I ranked it, I rated it all out. It was all out. I was, mm-hmm. I thought I was done after the second set. I made it through the third set. I was super proud of that striving. That was great. Um, <laughs> but I marked it all out and then adaptive training was like, why was it all out? And I was like, it just felt so intense. And when I marked it that it was great because then it gave adapted the workouts after that, man, it yeah. helps. Like with my it sort can. of mindset, I'm like, mm-hmm. we have this kind of, so we have this, um, this like it's like a false linear uh, perspective on like uh, on outcomes where we have like I'm here I need to get up into the right up here and the mm-hmm. only way to get there is if my slope continues so that the slope never deviates below the angle to achieve that point right I'm thinking like from a graph and we tend to put the pressure on ourselves to think that if at any point our progress the slope of our progress deviates from that and drops below it's done we might as well Can't give up, up. We didn't. Right. Yep. You're behind. So then You're weak like, behind now. Yep. Yeah. And instead, I think that that's a fallacy. And instead, in reality, what progress always looks like is up and down, right? In terms and down may actually yield a higher slope thereafter, right? Mm-hmm. Instead yeah. of us thinking that the max is whatever we, you know, the ideal slope was, and that's what we could deal with. And adaptive training does that because it tells you like look, like this is where you're at right now, and this is the right workout at the next time. It's not yeah. some pre-laid out thing, you know? Yeah, and even with the workout difficulties, um, I feel like just going beyond the black and white, like, it, yes, it's good to have those, um, like we said with our workouts, they're hard, they're challenging, they're of a certain standard, and that's that striving aspect of perf- the perfectionist is striving. But also there's levels of just because you can't do the workout to the T doesn't mean that you don't make progress and your your fitness is not evolving which is where you know the progression levels come in you you see that perhaps you didn't like hit every single workout but you you might see certain progression levels still rising some of them might stay the same but it's not as simple as like x plus y makes means improvement it's you passed or you failed I did the plan. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, yeah. Or even just like with adjusting the intensity or changing the day of the week, having having something that is that is backed in science that does show that you will move towards your goals with this guidance. I would say it's a guide. um, Yeah, we're kind of having. Yeah, but that nuance I think is what what translates the the science into practice and what actually allows it to work with humans <laughs> as opposed to we're not robots you know mm-hmm. yeah well said that's cool thank you sarah um yep, that was thanks. an awesome one let's do more study ones it's, i, I have love the one, study ones yeah so this one well i hate to disappoint you a bit nate but on this next one it's not really tied in directly to a study but it it is tangential to it and 
it was I'll really, see you later. It, yeah, <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> this was, so, um, and I don't want to reveal their, their names because I don't, I, I didn't ask for that. So I'm just going to say, um, two athletes and these aren't necessarily triathletes or cyclists or cyclists or triathletes or runners or anything else, but they're two very high performing athletes. I was speaking to them because I always have this mystery of like my really high lactate values, which by the way, I did a video on sodium bicarbonate. And when I took sodium bicarbonate, my lactate values got lower, but for other people, actually it caused them to be higher. But I like, basically it seems like it moderates us really interesting. Anyways, check out that video. But I was talking to them about what their metabolic profiles look like. In other words, as an exercise intensity increases, what is your substrate utilization? In other words, how much fat and how much carbohydrate are you oxidizing? And how does that change as intensity increases? Okay, so that's what I'm talking about there. And in talking to those athletes, they were mentioning that, and this is something that I've noticed on doing lactate tests on myself, when they are most fit, they burn more carbohydrate at all intensities, not more fat and less carbohydrate. And this is interesting because there's a very common theory out there. You've heard this a lot in particular. I'm sure Sarah and Nate, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast that this theory that if you're more fit, you spare glycogen and that there's like this whole like rush and focus to focus on substrate utilization and to be like less carbs, less carbs in terms of take in and don't focus on carbs. Instead, it's all about fat utilization and focusing in on that, right? As And if you do that, it will yield this fact that you are a fat burning machine that doesn't use glycogen until you absolutely have to. And then as a result, that's when, you know, you'll get high performance. In other words, like a more simplistic way to say it is the way to get faster is to spare glycogen, to use it only when you absolutely have to, because once you start using it, you're a ticking time bomb. That's kind of like the the mentality because you produce too much lactate that shuts everything off and boom, you get tired. Okay. So that's the theory. But in talking with these two world-class athletes, they, and this is just, these are anecdotes that I've mentioned that I've noticed in other spots. They mentioned the fact that like, no, when I'm most fit. I actually burn more carbohydrate at all intensities and not more fat and less carbohydrate. And then despite the high carbohydrate oxidation, they still burn fat far into that intensity spectrum. So this goes at odds with this common theory that you, you know, you're only when you're fastest, you just burn a bunch of fat and not carbs. Yeah, Nate. Is this at the same wattage or like power or pace? Because you know, if they're at this, if they're more fit at the same pace, you think they would burn more fat, but at a higher pace, they would burn absolute more carbohydrate because of their, yeah, right. which is what they want. Cause they, the more carbohydrate you burn at the many moves, the faster you're going. Absolutely. This is relative to yeah. This is relative to threshold. So that threshold would change as they get more fit. Okay. Does that make sense, Nate? So yep, they get really good at burning high octane fuel. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that's the interesting thing because like the, the, a lot of what's purported is that no, it's the, to get fast, it's not about burning high octane fuel and being able to burn a lot of it. It's about not burning it. It's about burning fat, right? And that's the a very common narrative that exists. So, and here's, and then I was pointed actually to somebody, I was having a discussion about this with a researcher and they were like, actually check out this tweet thread because this mirrors it exactly. And there's a researcher named Aitor Viribay Morales and Aitor, if you ever want to come on the podcast, the door is wide open. I would love to have you on. It's really interesting. He had this tweet thread that basically was like framing out our conversation. Uh, for, for background on him, he's a researcher in physiology and metabolism, and an incredible athlete in his own right, works with Ineos Grenadiers. They're, you know, this small team you may have heard of. Um, he also writes for Glute 4 Science and then also methub.es. And you may have seen Glute 4 Science's like Instagram uh, things that they post sometimes. And it's got like, little like animation, like infographs that they do and that, that represent different things. Very helpful. Uh, great, great at sharing this complex information. 
there's this tweet thread that I'm going to link to, and we'll show it on screen too while I'm talking through this. And I'm going to summarize it and quote some of the things. So here's what Itor said. He said, traditionally, fat metabolism has been on the top of endurance research when aiming to explain performance determinants. In a nutshell, those with higher fat oxidation rates, both in height, in other words, like the peak of how much fat they could oxidize, and width in terms of along the intensity spectrum, can they continue to burn a lot of fat? Those people have been postulated as potential winners. But as power, and then he goes on to explain that these days, you need a lot of power to win races. The athletes are going faster than they ever have. And as power is needed, or as power needed to win has increased, is that still relevant? This is the question he's proposing. And then he goes on to like frame performance in terms of now, like instead of like how much fat can you burn? Instead, we should be looking at it. This is just in terms of this, like this, this pondering that he's doing here. How many calories per minute can you produce? He mentions that from the research that they've seen, world tour athletes can burn roughly around 30 calories. And I assume that this is like at a steady state they're talking about 30 calories per minute, whereas an average athlete might be 20 to 22. So that's a significant less. But then he says, how do you do that? Not from just burning one substrate, like burning more fat, instead of being picky about what's being oxidized, the total volume of what's being oxidized is more important, and it should come from a variety of resources instead of just focusing on how can we make a person burn more fat. He then mentions like the main, it's interesting, he mentions sled dogs and the ones that race across Alaska. And he says that the main adaptation that they see of sled dogs after racing across Alaska, which by the way, those dogs are racing at 25% VO2 max and dogs VO2 max values are 240, <laughs> which is like, that's like four times that of like an average, like decently fit human, which is just nuts. Um, but he notes that the increase that he sees, the predominant adaptation is an increase in carbohydrate metabolism and then turn the ability to oxidize or to oxidize lactate as well. So he shows this graph of two pro cyclists and basically, and we're showing this graph on screen so you can see it now, but he shows the story of two pro cyclists here in this graph, the one with dotted lines and then one with solid lines. And the one with dotted lines isn't as fit. You can see their failure point is somewhere around 5.9. Um, watts per kilogram, whereas the fitter athlete with the solid lines, they go all the way up past 6.3. So I wonder if this is like Pogacar's data or somebody like that. Who knows? Um, it's quite interesting. But the notable thing about this graph that you can see is that this athlete that is more fit actually burns less fat than the person that is less fit, or I should say less strong, and they continue to be able to burn fat for longer, and they burn more glycogen than that person. So it kind of like directly flies in the face of this assumption that when you're really fit, it's because you're sparing glycogen. Instead, Wait, so, this actually shows that they, they can burn more. Yeah. So this is showing that the lower wattages, they're actually, their percentage is higher uh, carbohydrate than fat at the lower wattages too. Correct. Which, Which goes against... Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, so, you know, and, yeah. And then you, because uh, we've heard of this too with people on a keto diet, like you might burn more fat at the at the lower wattage, but then it's really hard to use that to use carbohydrates at the higher intensities, and that's what you need. And I think what this is showing, this is two athletes, but I'm guessing this person mm -hmm. has seen it more than just this, is that you're, they're actually just getting really, really good at total calories per minute, so a whole bunch of it, and then inside of that, a higher percentage of carbohydrate, the higher, the fitter they are which is so interesting. That's what you talked about. And also the trend with pro cyclists doing like 120, 140, 160 grams of carbs per hour probably also relates to this of them getting faster and kind of leaning into that than the let me train fasted and not try to raise my, my 
Because if this is true, why would you want to train and raise your fat? Um, Correct. Like exactly utilization, right. especially because these people too, they don't have like weight the concerns or like their mm -hmm. their body fat is the lowest of all athletes. Like it is insane. They aren't sedentary individuals. They you know it's it's yeah, exactly, very different. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. This is this is now, crazy. If you look at blood lactate below that, this is really interesting. So the blood lactate is actually higher at the lower intensities and the fitter person, but it's very close. If you look at the scale on the y-axis, it's effectively probably looks like within plus or minus 0.2 millimolar, so not a whole big of a difference there. But if you look at that, that athlete is still producing a lot of lactate and they continue to produce a huge amount of it. And now there's this theory that like if you have too much lactate present or you're producing too much lactate, it shuts off fat metabolism entirely. And that's just not true. It's like an absolutist perspective on it. Now, does it harm it? Yes, it does. But in terms of shutting it off, it doesn't. So um, that's what he explains there. Now, the, this goes against, like we said, this assumption that carbohydrate oxidation and lactate production halts fat metabolism. And I want to make clear what Nate said is that, so ITOR says that this is a trend that he's seeing with the highest performers in the sport, but he is not extrapolating it across entire populations. It's just a trend that he's noticing and it's interesting. So let's not take these words out of context, okay? Good. But this is, this is the ending thought. He says, if we want to explain performance and energy production only by fat oxidation capacity, we're missing the magic. Magic represents where extraordinary things happen. And what I'm learning, and this is ITOR's words, is that extraordinary things are explained by glycolysis activation and lactate production and oxidation. And then says, does this sentence change your paradigm? So this is really cool because the for a long time, it's like, the and, and to be clear, I looked into a lot of research on this, and most of the research that you see is not on the highest performing cyclists in the world. And you do see that with average populations, yes, in general, you see them as they get more fit, they end up sparing glycogen at lower intensities, right? So I want to make sure that we aren't talking about average populations here. In terms of you and I listening to this that are like fit people that are cyclists, I don't know where we fall on this spectrum. But this is just really interesting to see. And it makes me question if just like training is just way more simple than it's often positioned. And this dovetails with um, uh, Olaf Alexander Boo. He is the Norwegian coach of Christian Blumenfeld and Gustav Eden. So as of like over the past five years, the most dominant triathletes ever, they've broken records across the board, won, won the Olympics and set the fastest full distance Ironman course record ever in the same year within a few months from each other insane right so um they put out these videos called the norwegian method and in their episode three video i thought it was really interesting and coincided with this very simplistic approach with training he mentions that the focus that they have is on how to increase the maximum sustainable energy expenditure in other words how can we make our athletes burn the most calories for a given time and that's his focus and I, I just think it's really great and perhaps relieving to a lot of us going back to this whole like perfectionistic approach. We can measure so many things and, and really fuss about the different, like the, the substrate utilization that we have going on in our bodies. And maybe that's an indication of whether we're fit or fast enough. And in the end, if the fastest athletes in the world are just focused on how many calories can I burn per minute, I don't care what's being burned, what type of wood is being burned to make this fire. I just want to make that fire big. And I really like that approach to training because I think it alleviates a lot of response now or a lot of uh, uh, stress. So anyways, I just thought it was really interesting and keeping it in context for what it is. This isn't stating how all of our bodies work or anything else, but I thought it was really interesting. So I want to share it on here. If knows him, like, please let him. Yes. We should tweet him too or something because that'd be great to have him on the podcast. 
Uh, also, this is why, you know, we, we have recommended, um, especially athletes who are, you know, the two, three, even four watts per kilo, work on building your FTP because that makes your absolute calorie output increase way more than if you're trying to say you're a 30 year old man or 35 year old man at two watts per kilo and you're new to cycling or even if you've been there for a while it's you're probably gonna get way more gains for speed increasing your ftp um and it looks like even at this high high level you're still going to get more gains just going to burn as many calories as possible as many carbs as possible uh yeah that's that's super, super cool huh? yeah like you're yeah. not necessarily bad if you burn more uh mm -hmm. carbs and fat and it looks like they're not training specifically for that they're tra training specifically for maximum of calories and you get the maximum of calories by the you know the high in glycogen and lactate and um yeah. jet fuel yeah exactly don't say no to any sources of fuel like yeah, not solar power mm -hmm. jet fuel <laughs> that's the difference exactly. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah really good way to say it it's super interesting um there's a lot of other points that we could like uh discuss this stuff if you appreciated this episode uh sarah and i are always going through research and and if this is something you would like to do more of please let us know um it's a it's a really fun way to share these things with you without the process of going through and making the videos and going through everything so if you enjoy it let us know if you want us to make videos specifically on any topics like this or address any on the podcast go to spotify and you can submit those questions directly there or you can go to trainerroadcom slash podcast and submit them there and again if we get it to a hundred thousand likes uh or a hundred thousand subscribers on youtube i won't ask you for it anymore for a month so um, <laughs> let's make it I, uh, like this video too if you like the the, the um science stuff because i really want to do these more these are my favorite um mm -hmm. so like do the like and comment thing and then because if, if this this video has more views and everything else it's easier for us to see we'll hey, do more people yeah exactly uh yeah so that's how you can get it to make it so that we'll do more of these if it doesn't have as many we won't do as much so mm -hmm. that's that's key we it's follow data the data driven exactly yeah. right all right thanks everybody see you next thanks. time bye-bye